Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Cat Barney will join us to discuss Rebel Cell. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Grok's Science Show. Well, cancer. It's perhaps humanity's oldest and most formidable diseases. But what is it that we really know about it? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Kat Arney. Dr. Arney holds a PhD in developmental genetics from Cambridge University, was part of the key science communications team at Cancer Research UK. She's written numerous works on the subject for Dallas, including Wired, Daily Mail, and Nature, and author of two books, Herding Hemingway's Cats, Understanding How Our Genes Work, and How to Code a Human. She has penned the new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution, and the New Science of Life's Oldest Betrayal. And Dr. Arnie, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating new book that's coming out here, Rebel Cell, in which you talk about what we know about cancer. And curious why you decided to write this book. So the origins of this book actually go quite a long way back because when I did my PhD, I was actually in an institute that brought together developmental biology. You know, how do you go from one cell to make a baby or a different organism, you know, one cell to make a baby frog or a mouse or a baby human? And also there were cancer biologists in there, which is how do you go from one cell into a deadly tumor? For me, from the very earliest days of my scientific career, I've always seen these two things as being really linked. They're kind of fundamental processes of life. So in development, where you have one cell, it becomes many cells and they specialize and do all the jobs they're meant to do and they work together and genes get turned on and off at the right time and in the right place. That's life doing its thing normally. And then in cancer, you have one cell. And because of changes in the genes and changes in the environment around it, this cell goes off on its own aberrant journey. It becomes many cells. They stop doing what they're meant to be doing. They start doing all kinds of other things. They start spreading where they're not meant to be. They start pumping out nasty chemicals they're not meant to make. So it's this aberrant process of life. And then I went to work for Cancer Research UK and I was in the science communications team and really got a broad breadth of everything that was going on. I was there for 12 years, which is a long time to be in a job. But it was during the time when things got really exciting in the world of cancer genetics. And we started to find all these genes involved in driving cancer, all those genes that increased the risk in various people and families, and started to move towards an era which we now call precision medicine or precision oncology, where you can find the faulty genes, the faulty molecules that are driving cancer cells and develop drugs to target them. And so I was like grappling with these two ideas, this idea of cancer as a a fundamental emerging process of life going wrong. And then this very new shiny idea that if we just find the faulty genes, just find the faulty molecules, we can cure cancer. And then when you looked at the success from these drugs, you're like, well, you know, we're improving survival by months, 
So I think we need to go back and really understand what cancer is as a process of life and a process of evolution, because that's really why we struggle to treat advanced cancer. It evolves. It becomes resistant to the treatments that we have. So a new way of looking at cancer to explain why the treatments we have aren't working and then point to some potentially more exciting ways that we could really get a grip on it in the future. So is it that we don't have a good basic understanding of fundamental operations, how cells survive? Well, we've got into a very genetically reductionist way of thinking about cancer. And we we have a very genetically reductionist way of thinking about disease now because we are in the era of genetics. We can get stuff, we can sequence it, we can read all the genes, we can look at all the gene faults and say, right, that's what the problem is. And then if we can just target that, then we can treat the disease. We do know an awful lot. In writing this book, I didn't want to kind of diss all the research that's gone on into cancer and the advances. We have made significant advances in treating some types of cancer, but not others. And so it was like, okay, what what are we missing here? And this overly genetic reductionist focus on like, let's just find the cells and make this shopping list of mutations within them or this genetic bingo idea that if a cell just picks up enough of the right mutations, it will become a cancer. Okay, that is not quite right. Because actually, when we start looking at completely healthy, normal looking tissue, we find that we are riddled with mutations. And not only that, by middle age, your skin, you know, your tissues, your organs are full of mutations that if we found them in a cancer, we would say that that was driving the cancer and that we should target it with one of these fancy drugs. So it's like there is something we're missing here. And it's the concept of all our cells are a bit messed up, right? But they're all living in a society, in an ecology within the body. So we need to understand what turns these kind of sad cells, cells doing their own thing, what actually makes them become rogue? What makes them emerge out of this cellular society as cancer? And it's not just about the genetic mutations in there. As a geneticist, I find this very sad, but it's not just about the mutations. It's about the whole system, the ecosystem, the ecology of the body and thinking about this like almost like species evolving in a landscape, sort of a new way of thinking away from this. Just let's just find the genes and target the thing and that will be the answer. It's more like a holistic view. All the cells are a little bit wrong, but if you just have the right environment for a particular type of cell that's gone wrong, then it's the right environment for it to explode into a cancer. Exactly. And also the environment in our bodies doesn't stay the same. It changes as we age, which is why when we're older, we are more likely to get cancer. And and actually, it's incredibly cancer suppressive to be young. So uh, yeah, top tip, if you don't want to get cancer, just don't get old. But you know, Older tissue is, is changed, it's different. There are things that we do in our in our lives that alter the tissues within the body that cause inflammation, that cause damage. And also, of course, I don't want to say, well, there's nothing that damages DNA. It's like, yeah, don't add to your mutational load. Don't do things like smoking, which we know damages DNA, causes mutations and damages tissue. So, you know, it's not arguing like, oh, well, it's completely inevitable. There's nothing you can do. It's like, there are things that we can do that will protect our bodies. But it's about thinking, not just about making changes, mutations in cells, but also about preserving a nice, healthy tissue environment. So yeah, it's kind of a a different way of thinking about this. And you you mentioned the word holistic. And I, I really feel like it's time to reclaim that word for science, because it's been used by alternative medicine. It's kind of all like, woo, holistic kind of thing. But reclaim it as in the context of the whole 
body, the whole tissue, a holistic view of the environment of the body. And then understanding when cells do go a bit, you know, when they're a bit sad, when they pick up mutations, what does enable them to emerge within the tissue that they're in? What do we know about the environment necessary for creating cancerous cells and developing treatments for those type of environmental changes within the body? Yeah, so this is starting to get a handle on it. We call it the microenvironment. So it's like the, the tissue environment. This goes way, way back into like, you know, the, the 19th century with the men and their microscopes, uh, and they probably were all men, um, looking down the microscope at tumor samples. So that the first era of pathology, which was really how we first studied cancer. And this kind of idea of looking at tissue become very unfashionable since we got gene sequencing, because now it's like, oh, well, you, you want to look at the genes, you want to look at the how the genes are on and off and all the mutations, you don't want to look at like boring tissue samples. And also because it was difficult to look at this stuff, because you had to take tiny slices of tissue, put them on little slides, look down your microscope, take a photo, you know, that, that's very difficult. But now we have digital imaging. And this is, I think, really the congregation of digital imaging and genetic sequencing, I think is, is really going to change cancer going forward because you can actually start doing computer analysis on what these tumors look like and the environment around them and within them. You can see where there are hot spots of immune cells. You can see where the blood vessels are. You start to be able to see where there are sort of different types of patches of cancer cells. You can see where there's nasty toxic bits and, and much more oxygenated healthy bits. So bringing that together with what we can start to understand about genetic changes that are going on in tumors that are enabling different clumps of cancer cells to evolve in those environments, I think is, is really going to be a game changer. It's, it's very, very exciting bringing that together with digital imaging, AI and genetics. So when we think about risk factors for different types of cancers, does this view or approach change what we do practically? Yeah, so I, I think there's some interesting views about cancer prevention that come out of the book once you start thinking about this idea of how do you keep tissues healthy? And it raises the idea, we don't actually really know what is healthy. We only study things when we become sick. So we're really good at studying like what's gone wrong, but we don't look at what goes right. And there is something incredibly cancer protective about younger tissue. So what is it? And I think inflammation is something that's very, very interesting. Again, it's not a new idea, but it's been overcome in the rush to just look at the genes and the mutations. So I think understanding what causes tissue inflammation and how does that change the environment and how do we reduce inflammation? Because there's all the stuff we do know reduces the risk of cancer when we look at a population level. So obviously smoking is a big one, exposure to UV light, exposure to radiation, nasty chemicals. And then things that we know are protective are like, well, I don't know, like uh, stay a healthy weight, eat a healthy diet for whatever value that seems to be. Lots of fruit and veg, I guess, exercise. But those things that are protective, we don't know why. So let's find out what do they do to the tissue what does physical exercise do to our bodies that actually keeps our tissues healthy? What does being overweight or obese do to our tissues? What are the molecules that are produced that alter our tissue environments? And when we're eating a healthy diet, what are the things in fruit and vegetables? How do they interact with our tissues? So that stuff, I think, could be really interesting and could pave the way to more effective ways to really understand how to prevent cancer. In the short term, yeah, it is just all the boring stuff, I'm afraid, like just 
try and be healthy, don't smoke. That's a big one. Um, you know, but really understanding why. And then if we can sort of help to find ways that we can prevent cancer. I think there's not going to be a pill that you just pop and that keeps all your tissues healthy. But maybe there is something in understanding inflammation better, which which will be useful in the future. Part of the issue that you point out in the book is that because there's this push for a drug or drugs that can treat different types of cancer, this has narrowed our focus. Search for the magic bullets is kind of misguided in a way. Yeah, there is the narrative of the cure is so powerful. It goes back over 100 years. So Cancer Research UK, the organization I used to work for, it was founded in 1903, looking for the cure. And so we've been just obsessed with the idea of the cure. And probably the idea that the cure for cancer is pills in a bottle, it's pills, it's medication. And this has really misled us, I think, into feeling cancer is something that it has to be like eradicated, that just get rid of it completely. And there are some cancers that we can cure. So it's not like cures don't exist. The best cure for cancer is if you find it at an early stage before it's spread and remove it with surgery, that cancer is cured. There are some cancers that we can cure through radiotherapy and through some chemotherapies and through these new uh, immunotherapy drugs that they sort of stimulate the immune system to recognize and destroy cancer cells, but they don't work for everyone. And the challenge is particularly with advanced cancer that spread through the body, it evolves resistance to pretty much all the treatments that we can throw at it, potentially with the exception of some immunotherapies. So this idea that the cure is going to look like a drug it's really misleading when you start to look at the people who are researching more evolutionary based ideas for treating cancer that aim to like control the disease. So chasing it around in circles, working out where it's going to evolve next, then going round again, controlling the disease. And there's some really exciting clinical trials happening there. Or potentially viewing this again, back with the, the kind of the head of ecology on, is thinking about what does an extinction event look like for cancer? So not just one drug that's just going to be the cure, but if we apply the right pressures in the right ways at the right time, can we kind of make catastrophic changes to this population of cancer cells that make it collapse and go into extinction? You know, we know how to do this for animal species because humans are extincting animal species all over the world. So understanding this evolutionary ecology, we can start to devise strategies to control cancer in the long term or to drive it to extinction, rather than just trying to hit it with a hammer and, and call it cured when a lot of the things we have are not cures. How much of the field do you think is moving in this direction? It's starting to go that way. So there's an interesting survey about the number of papers that mentioned the words evolution and cancer. And you know, even a few years ago, it was hardly any, and now it's loads. So the genetic techniques are starting to look towards more of an evolutionary idea, taking multiple samples over time, seeing what's changed, seeing what's different. There are still some people who I think don't want to think about it because it's really hard. And particularly if you're treating patients and you know that their cancer is going to evolve resistance at some point, we kind of need to find out why. So the field is starting to move that way. There are some people who are quite skeptical of more of the very sort of ecological thing and like, well, how is this really going to help knowing this stuff? But genuinely, if we just keep on doing what we're doing, which is to just find more magic bullets, molecular therapies that provide months of improvement in survival, we're not going to get cures. I think we need to think in a different way about this disease and what controlling it really, really means. 
What do you think the field of cancer research is going to look like in the next five, 10 years? Do you think uh, this viewpoint is starting to gain more traction? Do you think that the cures that it comes up with will be more effective? I hope so. I mean, there's some very exciting clinical trials going on, particularly spearheaded by the Moffitt Cancer Center down in Tampa in Florida, that are using evolutionary ideas to control cancer, more clever strategies for even just using the drugs we have. So I think that's going to be a big area is how can we use the treatments we already have in a more effective way to devise extinction strategies for cancer? I think the area of digital pathology is going to be very, very exciting, sort of analyzing whole tumors and really understanding what's in there, what are the the species of cancer cells and what is their environment like. I think the area of immunology, understanding the immune system and how it interacts with cancer is incredibly exciting. Immune cells are the predators in the forest. Uh, So how do we really get them to recognize cancer cells, not to make things worse and, and try, you know, immunotherapy is an exciting, exciting field, but it doesn't seem to work for everyone. And in some cases, it can make cancers much worse. So we need to be very careful about it. And I think as well from the genetic point of view and the drug development point of view, I would like just to see more imagination. So from genetics, you know, looking long over long-term series, you know, time is the final frontier in cancer research, you know, not just space. We can do space through the imaging, but we need to go through time, looking how cancers are evolving over time. And also ultimately looking at post-mortem samples as well. So where did this end up? and trying to track back. And that's, again, very difficult for for patients. It's very difficult for doctors to say, it's like, well, we didn't cure your cancer. Your family member has passed away. But can we now take some cancer samples to find out what did we get wrong? How can we do it better next time for the next patients that come along? And then from the drug development perspective, it's like just more imagination, different targets, looking at the drugs that we have, thinking how can we use them in different ways. And maybe actually some of the new approaches might need drugs that we would conventionally think are less good, that don't actually kill and destroy cells with a maximum dose, but maybe stop them growing, make them less fit in this environment. So yeah, definitely some some more imagination. And yeah, nobody needs any more kinase inhibitors. I think that would also be my prediction. I'm bored of them. We were just talking with Dr. Kat Arning, author of the new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution, and the New Science of Life's Oldest Betrayal. And Dr. Arning, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.